Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week, we're coming at you with episode two of Scheme Month. Last week, we talked about defensive fronts and what that meant for the 49ers as they transitioned to a new 4-3. And this week, we're going to talk about the coverages, the backside. Uh, I guess for you booty lovers, this is the episode for you. Uh, the, that's what we're going to do. We just talk about butts all day. Um, I mean, I think we have a call to action already. Yeah. <laughs> hashtag talk about butts all day. That, uh, hashtag that booty. Yep. I'm, uh, I'm writing that. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. It's, it's uh, beginning of July. There's absolutely beginning nothing of July. happening. Uh, America is a year older. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, things are, things are good. Uh, last or yesterday was the first time I ever shot like the big fireworks that like exploded in the air. The ones that look like the ones you go see, uh, out in a park or whatever. Um, like a whim decision oh, yeah. to buy some fireworks, I, uh, and uh, it was pretty dope. I saw your fireworks on the uh, the old IG. Is the, yeah, the, the, old, the old the Instagrams, as the kids would say. Uh, but cool. So let's get to the rundown. There's really only one thing that happened in the rundown that is football related, and it wasn't even something that's 49er related. I thought it was an interesting thought experiment. If you listen to the Ringer podcast, uh, Robert Mays and Danny Kelly basically put together what they thought was a list of the most valuable players. They had quarterbacks, and then they had non-quarterbacks. And so I thought it would be interesting just to hear our takes both on what we thought the, the most valued or highest valued people are, both at the quarterback and non-quarterback position. But then also to think if, if there were a fantasy draft and all of the 49ers were put into the free agency ether, which of them would command the highest free agent contract? Um, it's going to be a little interesting because, well, this just happened, but, you know, whatever. Um, so David, they, they both had, uh, on, I think on the one year deal, it was Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady. Those were like, cause they each had their own list. Uh, and Robert Mays had Aaron Rodgers and Danny Kelly had, uh, had Tom Brady. I don't, I don't know even on a one year deal that I would take Tom Brady just simply because of that, that cliff, that impending cliff, it's going to happen. And I don't know when it's going to happen. I know it's so weird. Cause he's like a robot. I mean, he's barely a real person. Um, he doesn't eat anything that doesn't keep him at like optimal fitness at all times. Like dude's, yeah. dude's kind of insane. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's always, it's always hard. Like we know that cliff comes and, but it's, it's hard to see it coming, right? Like Peyton Manning put up huge numbers the year before he hit the cliff and, and then finally had to call it quits. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. I think I, I mean, I, I think I'd probably still have to go Brady. Like if just kind of one season, everything on the line like that's my guy probably i think it has yeah. to be at this point now in in the non-quarterback realm they had a, a bit of a discussion about um because i guess robert had aaron donald and jj watt in his top five uh and danny kelly didn't have any one of those players in his top five um wait he, he didn't had some, have who he didn't have donald he or? didn't have donald or watt in his, in his top five non-quarterback players that you would draft. Oh my god! I can, or that you would I can sign. hear Maze's uh, reaction to that, like in my mind right now. Like I didn't actually end up. I haven't had a chance to listen to that podcast yet, but uh, I, I can just imagine uh, the reaction from Maze to, yeah. to to that development. Like, oh my man, that's kind of crazy. yeah. He had he had Khalil Mack and Von Miller as his two defenders, and then he had uh, and then he had two. Uh, I think he had Odell Beckham and uh, and Antonio. Uh, uh, not Antonio no? Bryant. Yeah. yeah, there you go. I was like Antonio Bryant. No, now my brain just like <laughs> zoomed me back to 2002 for a minute. One of those so, things is not like the other. 
Yeah, there is a picture of one of their ass cracks on the internet. Uh, go and find it. It's, <laughs> it's true. Antonio Bryant, look it up. If you lived through the, the you know the early aughts, you know what I'm talking about. But okay, so for for the 49ers, then who you know quarterbacks aside, because you know whatever. Which of the players? Him and it uh, yeah. Uh, which of the players do you think would sign or command the largest one-year free agency deal? I, I think on one year, it has to be Joe Staley. Still, um, I, I think you're talking about. I mean, he he hasn't played. You know, last year he wasn't quite at, at as high of a level um, as you know he's been at, at points in the past. I, but he's still been. I mean, he's been consistently very good. You know, not necessarily. I, I don't think he's a you know a top five tackle anymore or anything like that. Like he was maybe at his peak, but. Um, you know, he's still been consistently a very, very good player, you know, playing a premium position, uh, like you have at tackle. I, I feel like he's gotta be the guy that gets the most in a one year. You don't think that it's someone, I mean, considering just the recent free agency thing, you don't think it's someone like Pierre Garçon? So I, th- I think that Staley would get, I mean, so we obviously have an idea of what, you know, Pierre Garcon would get on the open market because he just got a contract on the open market. And, and basically, so his cap hit this year, it looks like is just shy of six and a half million. Right. So I, I have to believe that Joe Staley would get more than six and a half. And, he, and even if you look at more of like an average salary um, for Garcon over that deal, which is like nine and a half million, I think um, I, I still feel like, you know, somebody's given Joe Staley $10 million for one year. Right or something, or at least in that neighborhood. I don't know. Maybe, maybe yeah, not. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's that's the guy. I guess at least I would give the most money to on a one year deal. Now let's let's extend it to five years. Let's say now you're you're introducing another variable into all of this, and you're saying, well, it's not just a one year deal. It's it's now a five year deal. Which of the players currently on the roster do you think to yourself, yeah, this is the person that someone would pay top dollar for for a five year deal because of their potential? I think I'm going to Forrest Buckner. I think it's probably got to be right. Maybe you look at one of the the cornerbacks. Um, you know, like yeah, if you maybe look at Richard Robinson or something like that. But I, I just don't think you know, even in just one year for both those guys. Like I, I feel a lot better that DeForest Buckner. Like the the odds of DeForest Buckner becoming a top tier defensive lineman to me are higher than Richard Robinson becoming a top tier corner. Like you know, they both could end up happening. They both could not happen. You know, obviously. Um, but, but I think if I had to put money on one of those guys, I feel better about Buckner just because, um, you know, he had a larger sample last year. So we've seen a little bit more of him and seen him produce at a high level, uh, over a larger sample. You know, I think he had uh, a little bit more from a pedigree standpoint there, you know, coming in with a top pick compared to somebody that struggled, you know, to even see the field for a variety of reasons in college. Um, so I just, yeah, I, I feel better about what I know about DeForest Buckner right now than what I do about somebody like Richard Robinson or, um, you know, I, I think offensively, I don't really know that there's any major young talent that I'm nah. you know, banking on right there. I think it's, it's gotta be somebody on defense. I think there, there are guys in the conversation, you know, I think any, uh, any of the defensive linemen, you know, recently could be in the conversation. I think you got a couple well, of I defensive think, backs I there. think if I'm, if you're doing away with. In my mind, this is the world of the wild, wild west of rookie wage scales where, where there is no rookie wage scale, right? It's like they negotiate whatever they negotiate. Yeah. And, and in my mind, then, I think that, you know, someone like good old Reuben Foster 
might still command you know a pretty decent five-year deal even as a rookie playing no snaps on the field just based on the projection um, and, and so I think that's that's if it wasn't going to be one of the defensive linemen because I think you're probably right it, it probably is DeForest Buckner um, it, then I would think that it, it, it would be someone like a Reuben Foster yeah that would I mean I I think I would land you know where contracts being what they are and, and where we've seen money go to certain positions and stuff like that. You know, I, I feel like a defensive lineman, you know, as a prospect, you know, being roughly equal, which I think that, you know, those guys are a lot of people considered DeForest Buckner to be the best defender, or one of the best defenders um, in, in his class, you know, same went for Ruben Foster. Um, I think that the, the position that Buckner plays is a more important, more valuable position uh, than the one Foster plays. So I think, you know, uh, to me, it would make sense for Buckner to edge that out. But yeah, I think uh, Foster absolutely would deserve to be in that conversation. Awesome. Well, yeah, that's about all the news. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's all she wrote. That was an interesting little thought experiment. Uh, moral of the story is uh, it, not a lot of people would get top dollar free agent there, deals. There's a reason we didn't do top five, because uh, that would be <laughs> really difficult. Uh, yeah, it would have been, it would have been difficult. But this is the second episode of Ski Month. Last week, we talked about defensive fronts. This week, we're going to talk about defensive coverages. And we're going to talk about single high coverages in the secondary specifically. So we're going to try our best to take you through what we think are going to be the key points of the new 49ers defense, knowing they're going to play a cover three. What the hell is a cover three? What's a single high? Um, and why does that matter? And, and then near the end, just like we did last week, we're going to talk about what that means for the 49ers transition to this new defense on the whole so first up, we have to take a moment to describe kind of what the basic two types of coverages are. Um, and a lot of this stuff, of course, is going to be reduced down to some of the big, broad concepts. But these are not just arbitrary, you know, over-reductions that we've done. Most of these descriptions and reductions we've gotten from videos of Nick Saban teaching this to coaches. Uh, so when we talk about, you know, the, the only the two types of coverages, um, that's not our opinion. That's Nick Saban saying, basically, there's two types of mother-flipping coverages. So, so, David, what are those two coverages? Yeah, so I think that's the place to start. And right? I, I think um, even from an offensive standpoint, right, when you when you look at uh, quarterbacks, you know, trying to identify coverages and, and, you know, help them with their reads pre and post snap and all that, this is kind of what it gets reduced down to at its most basic. And it's it's going to be, you know, single high coverages and split safety coverages. And, and you'll also hear the terms, I think, middle of the field open or middle of the field closed, right? Same thing. So middle of the field closed would mean that I have my single high safety in that middle of the field, right? Closing off the middle of the field, essentially. Um, my split safety coverages are going to be my middle of the field open. That means I got one safety split to each side of the field. So that area in the middle of the field doesn't have a defender directly in it, right? So that's yep. going to be mofo. kind of the starting point. Yeah, I, I love I love that it's a mofo, <laughs> mofo, and the other one doesn't quite you know no, flow as, really as well. Doesn't. So we'll just really no. stick with mofo, I guess. Mofo and not mofo. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, perfect. Um, but I, I think yeah, it, ultimately at the most basic level, every single defensive coverage can be grouped into one of those two categories. Yeah, and so you think of something like a cover three, and you've got middle, of, you've got someone in the middle of the field, so that's middle of the field closed. Cover two, it's open. Cover four, it would be open because there's no one in the middle. So you basically any one of the coverages that you're going to see or play is going to fall into either you know kind of middle of the field open or middle of the field closed. Now, alternatively, you you can play three different types of pass defenses with each coverage type, and those three are going to be man, which is is pretty obvious here, man to man. 
zone and then pattern match. So man to man is going to be is going to be straightforward. Each coverage defender is responsible for a specific receiver. For zone coverages, the defenders are responsible for a specific area in the field and they'll drop to a spot or a landmark. Now, pattern matches the cool new stuff that everyone's it, that everyone's using and that's basically coverage of defenders matching the receivers in man coverage after the pattern distribution. So they'll have rules basically that say, well, if the you know, number two receiver goes straight down the field, then you know this person carries them. And what it does is it makes certain uh, route combinations that are supposed to be really good against man coverage. Well, it turns your defense into zone, uh, and then vice versa. If you've got you know a pattern that's meant to really beat zone, then all of a sudden you know your your defense adjusts. It's kind of like the defense reading on the, on the fly to make sure they're never wrong. Uh, and there are a lot of really really cool rules to do this. But the Niners did this under Vic Fangio. Uh, in, in there, you know, everyone thought their defense was super simple, but it really wasn't because there's a lot of rules and it requires a lot of communication and people knowing what their what their roles are. But that's kind of the the new way of doing things. And most teams are playing some degree of pattern match so that it's not, you know, strictly man or strictly zone. It's usually any one of these three uh, during the course of the game. Definitely. It allows you to get the best of both worlds, essentially. So it's kind of like. Um, you know, it's the, the basketball equivalent of playing like a matchup zone, right? So if you played basketball growing up, it's it's a difference between, uh, you know, your standards, say like two, three zone and, and a, a more of a matchup zone where you're kind of playing the man in man with man technique in your area. So it's, a, it's a very similar concept. And, um, you know, it allows you kind of like you mentioned, it allows you to adapt to what the offense does and, and really allow the player in best position to cover a particular receiver to cover that receiver. Right. And, and can, when everybody's communicating properly and, and you have, uh, you know, that route recognition on point as a defense, um, it, it allows you to be in the best position possible to be able to defend some of these past concepts that are out there. So yeah, it, it, everything kind of ultimately gums down into one of those. Um, it can be difficult to tell, um, you know, unless you're really familiar with the rules, yep. um, you know, something can look like man coverage, but that may have been a pattern match play, right? That just played out in a way that allowed those defenders to play man coverage, right? And, and look like it. So um, unless you really know what those rules are and how a team's playing it and kind of, uh, you know, have heard some things about how that defensive coordinator likes to, to be able to run coverages, um, it, it can certainly be difficult to tell. But those are kind of, again, the three main types of pass defense that you can play within your, your two coverage types there in single high and split safety. So that's going to be the base terminology that we're going to ask you to carry throughout the episode, because most of what we're going to talk about, especially when we get to why the coverage is effective and, and how the defensive backs are going to play, really all go back to these two basic concepts. One is whether the kind of coverage that you're playing is either middle of the field covered or, or open, and then the type of defense that you're going to play within that, and that's man zone or pattern match. So let's then take a step back in history and talk a little bit about Pete Carroll, because I think the origins of this defense are really interesting. And I mean, this is basically Pete Carroll's defense that we're going to be playing back in San Francisco. And he really got his basics when he was a graduate assistant with the University of Arkansas with Lou Holtz and ding, 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 Monty Kiffin. So Pete Carroll owes a lot of his philosophy to Monty Kiffin. And, and this is a, a quote direct from Pete Carroll. He says, quote, during that time, I got to work with Monty Kiffin's staff on defense. He had been at Nebraska uh, before he came to Arkansas. I think he's one of the best coaches in the United States. He is just an unbelievable coach. He ran a 4-3 under defense that he, protected at, that he perfected at Nebraska. And they won a national title and many conference titles while he was there in the 70s. 
He brought the same defense to Arkansas. I've been running that same base defense since 1977 when I learned it from him. I've used variations of this defense my entire career. I've stayed with its principles through all my years of coaching. I have a real strong belief in this defense. I know the defense and its adjustments so well that my belief in its uh, in it is strong and rock solid. So one, I, I find it hysterical that he just, that he had to qualify that he thinks that Monty Kiffin's one of the best coaches in the United States, as <laughs> though there is a better version of Monty Kiffin in like Botswana or like <laughs> you know Papua New Guinea or something. It's like I don't know. You never know, man. You don't know. All right. I don't want to include French Guiana. Because French Guiana has a Monty Kiffin that's a bit more Monty Kiffin than Monty Kiffin. But in the United States, Monty Kiffin's the best. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so he, he learns the 4-3 in 77 at Nebraska from Monty Kiffin. But Monty Kiffin, as you all know, he preferred two deep safeties. Monty Kiffin's the guy who, of course, made the Tampa 2 famous in Tampa Bay with Tony Dungy. And Carroll, though preferred a single high safety. He preferred a middle-of-the-field closed defense because he was more of a corner guy. So Carroll thought that because he could coach cornerbacks better, he could kind of feature what they could do and play them on the line of scrimmage and play them aggressively and take advantage of that, which he felt gave him a couple of advantages, especially when it came to stopping the run. And so that he kind of evolved that, that single high look, and then he further developed the defense in San Francisco and that's where he kind of started combining the one gap and two gap principles that we talked about last week. So it, that that kind of evolution of Carroll is interesting, and and where he got that front foundation from Kiffin, but how he tweaked it a little bit and, and ended up thinking that single high was the way to go. Um, I think is is a good contextual piece to think about when we're talking about what all this looks like on the field. Yeah, definitely. I find it really interesting with Carroll's story too about how. You know, even though this was something, you know, this was a philosophy that he adopted very, very early on in his coaching career, you know, it, it took a lot of time. It took a lot of trial and error kind of for him to get it right. You know, we saw him uh, fail multiple times in the NFL as a head coach, you know, finally took him going back to college and going to, to USC and um, finally getting things kind of figured out there and, and zeroing in on what worked for him. So I think it goes to say that, yeah, even though we've seen a lot of this stuff, you know, defensively. Um, you know, in some form or another for, for a very long time in football, like it, it takes time to kind of build that and really get the nuances correct and, and kind of zero in on the way that you want to teach things and do things um, defensively. So, yeah, I, I thought, you know, and of course, having it tie back to San Francisco is kind of perfect for us. And um, just kind of the whole story of how he got from, you know, that that young coach uh, in, in the 70s as an assistant with uh, Monty Kiffin to, you know, now having one of the most dominant defenses of of this era is is kind of crazy. Well, and I thought it was interesting, too, because in doing research for for the episode, I came across him talking about him wanting to run this defense with USC and how yep. he couldn't do it. Yep. He said it was it was too much that the kids couldn't handle it, basically. So we had to dial everything back and we played a variation of it with the same principles and the same philosophy. But it, it looked very different. And then when I got to Seattle, it was like, oh, look. I can actually run what I really want. And and now, of course, you've got the, the Seattle defense that we know hated for a while and now are being forced to love. <laughs> so, so, David, let's yep. talk about the single high coverages. Why why is it that this single high is something that is is focused on so much? We hear about it all the time. We're doing an episode on it. What what the hell is the big deal? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously we we know from Carol's history and, and a lot of the stuff that you just talked about there that he prefers that single high look. And 
it does play out, you know, on the field and in not only looking at Seattle's defense, but looking at some of his uh, disciples going elsewhere. Right. So, I mean, last year you had Seattle, you had Jacksonville with Gus Bradley and you had Atlanta with Dan Quinn all running essentially like a version of Pete Carroll's defense, which is the same sort of version, you know, a version of that defense is going to be what San Francisco is running this year. And those teams led the NFL in the percentage of single high coverages played. Um, Seattle was first. They played at 89% of the time. Atlanta was second at 86% of the time. And then Jacksonville uh, was third at just shy of 80. So uh, basically somewhere between eight to nine out of every 10 snaps, those defenses were in single high coverage, um, you know, well above the NFL average, which was right around 60%. So um, yeah, it, it's something that we can pretty much bank on that we're going to see from this team a, a lot of the time, the wide, wide majority of the time, um, you know, is, is from a coverage standpoint this season. And remember that single high doesn't mean necessarily cover three. Single high could be cover one, where there is one safety in the middle of the field and everyone else is playing man. Uh, sometimes I think it's called man free. They've got you basically got a whole bunch of different names for a lot of the same shit. But just remember that when we say single high safeties, it means that or single high coverage, it means that there's the defining factor is that there is one safety uh, single uh, up <laughs> at, at the top of, of the, the the defense. So yeah. all, all so, three yeah. of the pass defenses. Right. So, again, going back to the very beginning, two types of coverages, single high and split safety. The three types of pass defenses within that you can all get from single high, whether that's man zone or pattern match. So um, any one of those, again, yeah, like you mentioned, key thing, one defender deep as a as a safety in the middle of the field. Yep. So one of the the strengths of the single high coverage is that you've got that deep middle safety to protect against deep passes. and, And it's kind of a big deal for the foundation of what Pete Carroll thinks should be done on defense. Pete Carroll is basically insistent on not giving up a big play. There's uh, someone who coached with Pete Carroll for 18 years, a guy by the name of Rocky Seto. He was the assistant head coach uh, and and basically ran the the defense for the last couple of years or helped run the defense here uh, for the last couple of years in Seattle. And he's done a couple talks about the defense. And he says, quote, sorry, math and stat phobes. USC coaches both track and hang their hat on this notion, giving, not giving up the big play. And it's the number one base principle for secondary play. USC annually leads the Pac-10 in not allowing big pass plays on defense. This was a, and that's the, that's the end of the quote. This is a talk he gave when he was still at USC with Pete Carroll. But that's a philosophy that Pete Carroll still carries to this day with Seattle. And still, Seattle does not give up a whole lot of big plays. They're consistently in uh, the top uh, meaning that they give the fewest amount of big plays on defense. So that is one of the foundational pieces. And having a deep middle safety helps you attain that by having someone roam the middle and protect against the deep pass. Definitely. And, and I think so. The other thing that you get is dropping that other safety down into the box as an extra run defender. So um, obviously we talked a lot about the run game and kind of how things fit up front. Uh, there on the last episode, but you know, being able to drop that extra safety down in the box allows you to make sure that you have all of those gaps accounted for. You know that you have a free defender in the box to make the tackle in the run game. Um, so it really helps you out on that front. But then you know, also the the other big thing, not only does it help you um, protect against deep plays and, and against those big passes that can really kill your defense, but it protects the middle of the field in general, right? So. Um, whether that's cover three or whether that's a man free, like cover one type of coverage, you're, you're very strong in the center of the field. 
Um, and it, it really forces offenses to throw two places to throw short and underneath or to throw, you know, outside the numbers and why, because you, you have a lot of bodies there in the, the middle of the field. And that's something that is really, really good for defenses. So you look at completion percentages from last season. When offenses were throwing, quarterbacks were throwing to the middle of the field last year, they completed the ball just under 71% of the time, 70.7%. You move that number outside uh, the numbers on on the field there, and that drops to 61.4%. So that difference, just to kind of put that in context, is 9.3% difference. That's basically the difference between Sam Bradford, who had the highest completion percentage in football last year at 71.6, and Carson Wentz, who ranked 18th at 62.4. So basically the same gap that you have between first and 18th, that's what you're turning the quarterback into when you force him to throw outside the numbers as opposed to in the middle of the field. So, um, you you know, more difficult throws out there or, you know, again, shorter throws where your defense can kind of rally up and make the tackle and and really limit yards after the catch. So really, really strong in that area. What you're saying is that it's it takes nine percent of something to get the wheels to fall off a bandwagon is is basically what you're saying. (laughs) Uh, 9% over four games, I guess, is, is that's the threshold for bandwagoning. Uh, and everyone just jumped off the Wentz bandwagon. <laughs> I mean, hey, never on. Never on. <laughs> right, raising my hand right here. Never on the Wentz bandwagon. Yeah, we, I, I will say, I was, uh, I, I, I always love a good quarterback story, uh, especially in Philadelphia, uh, because, you know, why the hell not? I had to root for something. So for four games, I was like, oh, man, this is great. This is awesome. But, yeah, you know, it was not to be. So what the hell are the role and responsibilities for this deep safety? Uh, Because there are, um, you know, not just the deep safety, but also the outside cornerbacks. For the deep safety, that single high defender, their baseline is that they're responsible for the area between the numbers and about 18 to 20 yards deep. If the player can't cover that area, then they can't play the position. This is the key part, and this is why it's so difficult to find a free safety in this primarily cover three or single high safety look is because you got to run a lot and you've got to make up a lot of ground. How often did you as a 49ers fan like just kind of pull your hair out when Eric Reed was trying to play and he just couldn't get to the sideline fast enough to disrupt a play or Antoine Bethay couldn't get there fast enough or just any number of slow safety that we had just could not get there fast enough. That's exactly why, because they could still recognize and break, but if they didn't have the speed or range to cover that, that, that space, all of a sudden, that middle area is not protected, and it's not that big of a deal, and teams are completing passes on you. Definitely, and, and I think, and uh, just to clarify one thing, is so 18 to 20 yards deep and beyond, right? So it's, it's, that's kind of the starting point. Anything shy there, really, you want him to be able to get to that kind of deep dig route, right? So that deep in-breaking route that's in the kind of 16 to 18 yard range there that you you'd really like to have your free safety in this type of scheme be able to at least challenge that route right at least arrive as the ball does and kind of make contact there so that's kind of uh his his boundary in front of him and then of course yeah you want you know everything behind him he can't let anything back there he's playing that center field essentially so um and obviously that's kind of like you mentioned that's the baseline anything that you can get beyond that, right? When you have somebody like Earl Thomas, he's not just going between the numbers, right? He's able to stretch his range outside the numbers, um, which is what makes him so valuable, right? Because he can cover that extra ground and and really help his cornerbacks out um, and and make it so that they don't have as much area to cover in, in their zone responsibilities on the outside. 
So that's the deep safety's responsibility. And, and Carol basically has the, the thing about Carol that's interesting is he's done a ton of coaching clinics. He's done. So there's a lot of quotes from Carol where he's describing the, the responsibilities and kind of the key parts of, of the role. So again, from Carol, quote, if a defender can play the post and the seam route, then they can learn to play at that level. The thing that kills and breaks down a defense is the ball being thrown over the defender's head for a touchdown. Teach your younger players to play the deep middle and forget all about all the confusing rules. The guy who's playing the deep middle has to figure out who can get into the middle, and we want our safety to play the middle of the two receivers that can run the post route. Basically, he wants to split the relationship with anyone who can get down the middle. So we're going to talk a little bit about the seam routes a little bit later, but the key thing is that, that Carroll really preaches to his, to his safety is you have to be able to cover the ground that you need in order to, to protect the center of the field, and you have to know how to, you know, how to, how to diagnose some route concepts so you know who's going to be in your area and who's not. Other than that, you're good. If, and, and those things, they sound simple, but they're not always easy. But if you can drill those and perfect those and get better at those two things over time, Carol thinks that you can be very, very successful playing the middle of the field. You need somebody, you know, that, uh, you know, can process information quickly, that can be a very instinctual player, you know, to be able to break on these routes and kind of get where the ball's going. So it's, yeah, it's a very important role in this defense. And even when you move to the outside, right, you start looking at what the cornerbacks are doing. Um, It's still kind of everything revolves around that middle of the field safety. So um, one of the things in in a a lot of teams that play, you know, I think most single high coverages are going to use some variation of this, but uh, this was something that Saban points out specifically, and and this is uh, th- this idea of a divider for your outside cornerbacks. And essentially what that divider marks is what sort of leverage he wants his cornerbacks playing based on where they are on the field. And that really is based on their proximity to that middle of the field safety. So essentially he marks the divider, and, and I, um, you know, I, I couldn't really find anything. I, I haven't seen anything of Carol mentioning a, a specific landmark for this, but it does show up when you look at uh, you know, how his cornerbacks are playing, what sort of technique they're playing on film. It, it seems to line up with this sort of concept. And uh, so for Saban, it's 10 yards from the sideline for each corner. So how that works out is, is a way to kind of visually see that when you're watching the game is basically two yards to the bottom of the numbers. So if you're looking at it from the broadcast angle, right, and you're reading the bottom of the numbers, um, you know, there on the bottom of your screen, just shy of that is kind of where the defender is going to have that divider marked. And basically, if he's outside of that, if the receiver's outside of that divider, he wants to play inside leverage. He wants to take away the inside routes because he doesn't have help there anymore, right? The, the safety's too far away. Safety's not going to be able to get in, in, on those routes and be able to make plays. However, if he's inside that divider, he's inside the numbers, right? He's, he starts moving closer to the middle of the field. Well, now that safety has the ability to help. And so I don't need to really overplay the inside as much. I want to be an outside leverage because... That's where I don't have help, and uh, that's how I kind of want to push my my receiver and be able to take away those outbreaking routes now because I have the safety, I have the linebackers underneath, which we're going to get to, to really help me with all of that inside stuff. So everything in this defense is predicated about around what the center free safety can do, and even their alignment and leverage is all going to be based on getting help or protecting themselves because the wide receiver is lined up too far away from their inside help. So the other feature of this defense is going to be how the cornerbacks press or how often they press. 
We know that the scheme likes to have its cornerbacks be physical in the line of scrimmage. And if you remember from earlier in the show when we were talking about where Carroll really got his philosophy and started to put it together into the defense, he talks about why it was that he chose the cover three, and that's because he felt that he could coach up the physicality at the cornerback position because Carroll is a cornerback's coach through and through. And when you look at how often the Carroll Disciple defenses play press, they are all in the top half of the league in snaps with at least one cornerback in press coverage. Seattle was eighth, playing press with at least one corner 63.8% of the time. Jacksonville was 13th at 56.5. Atlanta was 53.7. That put him at 16th. Uh, and the NFL average is 53.4. Uh, the the best part about this, though, is where San Francisco ranked uh, on that ranking. David, where, where the hell did San Francisco rank? Yeah, I thought this hold on. was... Well, hold on. Before, before, before you say anything... Listener, in your mind, think to yourself right now, where do I think they rank? Do you think that they ranked high or low? Put whatever ranking you think they were in your mind. David, what, where did the Niners fall on, uh, on press? They were actually ahead of Seattle. So they actually just slightly ahead. So Seattle, again, was eighth. Uh, it, it just shy of 64%. The 49ers were right at 65%, which ranked them seventh. So, uh, yeah, I thought that was really interesting that they played... Um, you know, press a higher percentage of the time, you know, even if it was just slightly than uh, these defenses, you know, that, that are kind of known for being physical at the line of scrimmage, right? Especially that Seattle defense. And um, I don't know, you know, when you think about it a little bit more, you know, I, I feel like we talked about last year, the fact that, um, you know, the cornerbacks were playing press more often and, you know, were being a lot more physical compared to what we saw, you know, from Eric Mangini's defense the year before. Um, but it was, I didn't really expect it to be quite that high. And then, um, you know, I started digging a little bit further and noticed that somebody like Richard Robinson, um, actually was in press on just shy of 92% of his snaps. So he played 310 snaps last year on defense, 285 of them, uh, were in a press alignment up there, uh, you know, near the line of scrimmage. So he's somebody, you know, and, and I think, you know, the cornerbacks, all the holdover cornerbacks in general are, are kind of already a little bit used to playing up near the line of scrimmage and, and playing with some of that technique, even if, uh, you know, some of the stuff that happens after the snap and the specific coverage assignments that they have and whatnot uh, may, may end up being a little different a lot of the time, you know, at least that idea of, uh, you know, being, it's not, it's not going to be a drastic change when it comes to the line of scrimmage stuff and, and being kind of physical at the line of scrimmage. So, you know, we've talked about several times, I think with Robinson and Dante Johnson and now Akella Witherspoon coming in and, and how that really kind of fits their skill set and uh, being able to be physical at the line of scrimmage. So, uh, yeah, I just thought it was interesting that it's not going to be as big of a change as maybe some of the, you know, everybody would have really expected. So why, why do you press? Why is that something you do? Maybe in the case of the defense last year, it's because Jim O'Neill decided he needed to blitz everyone in order to generate any pressure. Uh, and when you leave your cornerbacks on an island, then you're, you might have them up and, and playing some press. But why does Carroll, would, why does he prefer the press? Why does it work so well? in this defense and it's because it disrupts the timing of the pass routes especially initially one of the weaknesses of your typical cover three are short routes in a three-step passing game and by playing press and playing those routes a bit more aggressively you can limit the damage done in this area you can limit the quick slants you can limit the bubble screens you can limit anything that's going to uh, affect this defense right away and and then you get into you kind of some of your pattern match rules your zone rules or your man rules depending on what it is that you need so that's why teams like Seattle, Jacksonville, and Atlanta will play a little heavier press. And it's just because one of the weaknesses of the defense is those initial quick passes. And so you disrupt that initial timing, 
And now all of a sudden you, you kind of get into the rest of the flow of the play. Um, you really start, you know, when you add this element there, you really start to constrict the space that the offense has to work with, right? We've seen this uh, with basically every single Seattle game, you know, um, since what, 2011, essentially, you know, when those teams were, were good and even up through, you know, uh, in the last couple of years when the Niners haven't been so good, uh, it's the same story on offense, right? It's that they're kind of relegated to this, this dink and dunk offense, you know, in the passing game because they can't push anything downfield. And it's all these really short passes um, that they even have trouble completing those at times. And and you're just you have this defense that's being physical, that's trying to take away the easy stuff and then, you know, kind of collapse on everything that gets thrown underneath. Right. You're limiting the deep ball. Um, you know, you're giving up a little bit of space inside, you know, especially in the middle of the field to kind of get some depth. But you're coming down and collapsing around everything. And it just kind of, uh, again, restricts the space that you have to work with offensively when you have the athletes there to kind of, you know, carry out this type of scheme, right. And play, play very fast. Like you've seen from Seattle over the last several years. Let's talk a little bit then about the underneath coverage principles, because there are a couple of principles that, that you preach in this defense that are really going to help you understand what the underneath defenders specifically are supposed to do. And there are a couple of principles of the three deep zone coverage. And the first is that the players underneath are going to drop to an area and they're going to reroute the receiver if the receiver gets in their area. There's a couple of really interesting reasons for this, but I thought the person who described it the best was uh, was Nick Saban when he talked about the seams being a weak spot in this coverage. So one of the common ways that you'll see teams try and beat a cover three is by putting that safety in conflict. And the way that you put that safety in conflict is by basically putting two receivers in his area that he's got to choose from. And the quickest way to do that is by running him up the seams. And so what Saban says is basically, look, they're going to try and do this. So what do you have to do on defense? Reroute the receiver. That's the number one thing you've got to do. Get to a spot, reroute that receiver to prevent them from running free through the seam and attack that middle safety. So that's the first thing that you're going to want an underneath defender to do, which is drop to an area and reroute the receiver. Something that is going to be uh, interesting and something you should remember when we talk about the 49ers specifically and some of the linebackers uh, that may have to do this more often in coverage. Yeah, I think if if you're a team that plays a lot of single high, you are going to see a lot of four verticals, right? That's just inevitably something that's going to come up. And, you know, you've heard some of the Seattle defenders uh, talk about this in the past where, you know, you can kind of, you know that you're going to see a lot of certain types of passing concepts, right? By playing this type of scheme, playing this type of coverage. And so you can really kind of uh, narrow in your practice time on making sure that you can defend these things and the, that you're well equipped to handle those. And I think, you know, with four verticals, especially, which is where you do get, you know, two of those receivers running up the seam and kind of threatening that middle of the field safety. Um, it's very, very important for the underneath coverage defenders, you know, even if they, maybe ultimately passing those guys off and they're not ultimately responsible for them in coverage. If they're not doing their job and rerouting those receivers in the seam, they're, they're making that job for the safety in the middle, you know, nearly impossible at times. So you have to be able to disrupt those routes. You have to get them off of that line that right directly down the seam and kind of force him wide. And then he has to bend back in, right? And that extra time means the ball's in the air a little bit longer means your safety in the middle has a little bit more time to react. So um, yeah, again, even if they're not, you know, necessarily directly responsible for receptions in that area, for receivers in that area, their role is very, very important in, in stopping those completions. In my mind, it's a little bit like why you want your your why you pick up blitzers from the inside out, 
because the shortest path to a quarterback is going to be up the middle of the field. And you want to give the quarterback that extra beat to get the ball out and make a decision. Well, in this defense, the safety is the quarterback, and the safety's got to be responsible for effectively staying clean and needing the time in order to make a decision on whether they're going to break. And so if you let that that receiver run undefended or unbumped straight at the safety through the seam, it's bad and bad things happen. So that that to me is the correlate on, on both sides of the balls. You don't you don't let a free rusher come up the middle against a quarterback, and you don't let the same thing happen to a safety up the seam. And so, you know, after that, once you've dropped to your area, you've rerouted that receiver. Then, you know, and, and this part is, uh, you know, not going to be the case 100% of the time, kind of like we talked about at the top. But the, the kind of next phase of that is going to be to match the pattern, right? So depending on what route that receiver runs, you're either going to pass him off to another defender that's going to be waiting for him, or you're going to be picking that receiver up effectively in man coverage from that point on and matching his route. So that's kind of the next step. And then finally, of course, you're looking for these guys to break on the ball and make plays, right? That's one of the advantages of playing zone coverage is that everybody's eyes are kind of looking back at the quarterback, right? You're not as focused directly on the the receiver hundred percent of the time. Like you're going to be in man coverage. Um, so you have the ability to see, you know, kind of where the quarterback's looking, see him release the ball and, and have a chance to make a break on it. You know, at the NFL level, uh, it's, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to just kind of react and, and see because you see the arm strength with these quarterbacks. And, um, you know, as Saban had a good, you know, it's, it's a little, maybe a little dated now, but, um, you know, had a, had a good quote, like break on the ball is nice until Dan Marino's the one throwing the ball. Right. And then, you know, good fucking luck essentially, because you're just not going <laughs> to be able to get there. Um, and, and so, you know, there's, there's, you, you want to be able to make sure that you're in the right spot and that you don't have to travel as far when you're breaking on the ball, but that's kind of that last step, right? You have to go make a play, get your hand on the ball. And so those are kind of the, the core principles, especially for the underneath defenders, I think, um, you know, in, in that zone coverage in in effectively the cover three, you know, that the 49ers are going to be playing a lot of this year. So then you think of the types of underneath zones that these players will play and, and the type of underneath zones they are going to play really come down to two big categories. One's a hook zone and the other is a curl flat and a hook zone is exactly what it looks like. It's basically going to be near the middle of the field, almost at the, at the end of the tackle boxes, because you're looking for a wide receiver to come in and just hook and run a hook, and so you, it's called a hook zone. It's This is one of the more obvious names for a zone, I think, in football. They'll come up with some really weird things. I mean, even the numbering system from last week, like the, you know, three, five, seven, two, two I, you know, like, that's still weird. But this one makes sense. Football you run coaches, a hook, I'm going to make a hook zone. I like it. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not that creative. You know, a lot of this stuff uh, is, is pretty straightforward, and, um, you know, they, they're naming it exactly what it is, you know. And so, again, yeah, the hook zones are going to be the ones in the middle of the field. You know, curl flat are going to be, um, you know, kind of like maybe your outside linebacker. This is going to be your box safety, right? This is Eric Reed um, here is going to be playing curl flat a lot of the time. Um, the interesting way that I, I really like that Saban teaches it is so, you know, there's kind of two ways that you can go about teaching a lot of this stuff as a coach, right? You can either focus in individually where, okay, this player is, is going to be playing this position. So he needs to know this specific assignment, right? He doesn't really need to be a, terribly concerned with what everybody else is doing. As long as he knows what he's doing and can carry that out, or you can kind of teach. And this is, I, I think a much better way to go about it is you teach the whole concept, right? You teach the whole defense. And so that way everybody kind of knows what's going on. They know what the defense as a whole is trying to accomplish. I know that the the two kind of, uh, you know, middle underneath defenders are going to be playing hook zones. I know that the two guys at the outside are going to be playing curl flat. And I know why they're there and how those things are working together. And then it makes it a lot easier to make adjustments, right? So 
there are some different variations of cover three that you'll hear reference fairly often. Uh, and those three are going to be sky, buzz, and cloud. And really what those refer to is who is going to be one of the, the, the curl flat players, right? Who's going to be the force defender um, on that side of the field. And so they're, they're named after a position. Again, coaches aren't trying to be, you know, too cute with this stuff. It's all pretty straightforward. So sky means that safety is going to be, uh, that, that flatter force player, right? So this is going to be when Eric Reed is down in the box and that's what his responsibility is. Buzz is going to be when a linebacker is responsible for that flatter force. And then finally, Cloud is when you have a cornerback that's going to be rolled up and he's going to be playing that flat force responsibility. So those are the three variations, but really, you're not all you're changing is who's carrying out the assignment, right? You're not changing the assignments themselves. I still need three deep defenders. I still have four underneath defenders, Two of those guys are in hook zones. Two of them are in curl flat. It's just who that is gives the offense, you know, it gives you the ability to give offenses a little bit of a different look without making things overly complex for your defense. And so I think that's a a really good way to approach is teaching that whole, and then you can kind of mix and match the individual parts. And that's, it's, again, another one of those easy ones. S, sky, safety. C, cloud, cornerback. Uh, B, buzz, this is the most difficult one, linebacker for buzz. That's how you remember them. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like the, it's not like Port and Starboard, which we learned last week. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make any damn sense, but you know, whatever. Oh, it makes perfect sense. Uh, no, it makes perfect it, sense. It makes more sense now that you know what it is, but it's not. Well, uh, the one that's, the one that screwed me up was like the, the one that was like forward and backward or like the, I even forget what they are. It was like aft and like Starlight or some shit. I don't know. Every, every <laughs> Starfleet. I don't know, man. Yeah. It's just like something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm down with Starfleet, Stardate. <laughs> I, 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 I can deal with it. What what I think is, you know, kind of this. So for me, what's interesting about this and what I think makes the most sense philosophically is that everything about the defense is about allowing players to play fast. And there's a book by Fritz Shermer that is is basically a, a really good foundational philosophical defensive book. Uh, and I've actually got it next to me, but I forgot the title of it. Uh, this is coaching team defense. Coaching team defense. Yeah. That's right. Um, and he talks a lot about how you want your defenses to play fast because you want their athleticism to be the thing that shines. You don't want defenses or defenders to have to sit here and think too much or too often because then you're robbing them of the thing that usually made them very, very good, which was them athletically. And to me, this is what this defense allows us to do is it is you know fairly consistent i mean you know that they're going to be paying they're going to be playing press a majority of the time they're going to be playing single high a vast majority of the time you've got a couple of variations and you've got some definite complications when you're talking about matching patterns but by and large you're putting players in a position to succeed you're teaching them concepts and you're letting them get after the ball and use their eyes and go see what's in front of them this is why Kaepernick, I think, had such trouble with the, the zone reads and, and the read options that we would run is because their eyes were at Kaepernick and he couldn't, you know, he didn't have green based defense out there running loop to loops and playing man coverage because they could see what was in front of him. They forced him to earn every inch. And that got really difficult because Seattle had really athletic defenders. And, and this, is, this, I think, is the beauty of the philosophy of this scheme is there is a lot of intricacies and there's stuff with the front, there's stuff with the, the coverages, but at its core, it's saying, look, this is what we're going to do and we're going to get really, really good at this thing. Come beat us. Yeah, I think and they will they, uh, for a bit, <laughs> but, oh, yeah. <laughs> but it, it'll get better. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think the kind of thing that I would add on to that, too, is, is that 
defensively, you know, by having things be a little bit simpler, right, and, and you're not throwing a bunch of different things at your, your defenders um, from a scheme standpoint and making them remember, uh, you know, that allows them to focus more on what the offense is doing, right? And you, you start getting deeper into your film study on the opponent, and you can really start to recognize, okay, I know when they're in this formation, they like to go to these pass concepts. And when you can be on it from a route recognition standpoint, I mean, that helps your defense out so, so much. I mean, um, you know, I, I really think that on the defensive side of the ball, it is more about having the athletes than than it is the scheme, right? I think on, on offense, uh, to a degree, you can kind of scheme up some things to to make your offense maybe perform at a higher level, a uh, higher level than their talent would indicate. Now, on defense, I think you have trouble doing that. You know, if you don't have the guys out there that can get after the passer and, and pressure the quarterback and uh, that can cover guys on the back end in the pass game, like you're going to struggle regardless of what sort of scheme that you're doing. So I think it is best, you know, you need to have enough there to to have answers to what the offense is throwing at you. But it, I think it definitely that the philosophy of keeping things simpler letting your players play fast and, and, you know, being able to, to focus their attention more on what the offense is doing and less on what their specific assignment and role is um, really helps you out, uh, you know, from, again, from a route recognition standpoint and just kind of being able to be in the right spot to, to shut a lot of this stuff down. So what does this mean for the 49ers defense as a whole? What are they going to need to do in order to transition to this defense successfully? And of course, the big question, the big thing that the team is going to have to answer is whether or not Jimmy Ward will move to free safety successfully. So, David, based on what you've seen from Jimmy Ward on film and based on what you know that that free safety should do just in general from a scouting perspective, do you think that the the move to free safety is going to be a good one for Jimmy Ward? Yeah, I think this is his best position. I think this will ultimately be, you know, we've seen him. Uh, obviously on the outside last year, we've seen him predominantly in the slot, um, you know, during his career so far, I think this is going to be his best position. Um, you know, you looked at the type of player that he was in college. Um, I, I just think he's a very smart player. You know, he's a plenty good enough athlete to play that spot and to have good range there. Um, but just from, you know, uh, again, he's a, he's, I think he's a smart player. I think he's going to recognize things and be able to process information quickly. You know, a lot of those, those skills you've seen him, display when he's been in the slot so I think some of that stuff carries over just being able to, to kind of recognize what the defense or excuse me what the offense is doing um and, and be able to break on balls so I think he's gonna see you know we finally last year I think got a chance to see him you know make some bigger plays right some some more splash plays to get some attention well um, one of those I think was the play a play that illustrates a lot of what you're talking about and that was the pick six I think it was against the Jets where he had to recognize the play break on the ball make a pretty athletic play to, to kind of stay on his feet and well, to make the catch and stay on his feet. Uh, and then eventually he ended up scoring. And I think that, that, that he can do that in a tight space. And now imagine what he can do with, you know, 10, 15 yards of green in front of him where he can see the whole play developing. Yeah. And it, again, it's not new to him. You know, I think there may be a little bit of an adjustment, you know, just, you get used to playing up closer to the line of scrimmage a lot. Now you're, you know, moving back and you're playing, you know, 12, 15 yards off the line of scrimmage to start the play and you just kind of have everything unfolding in front of you. It's a it's a different perspective that you have to get used to, but this isn't completely new to him. I mean, this is what he did uh, in college. Like that was his kind of primary role, if I remember correctly, was playing kind of that deep safety position. So, um, yeah, I, I really like what he, I again, I think that's going to be his best position. I like the the transition there a lot. So the corners, then, we know that we like or we need corners that are going to be physical in the line of scrimmage. We know that Richard Robinson can do it. He played 90% of his snaps in press, <laughs> and he was pretty good last year. So the, the, the question is going to be whether or not 
you need someone else on the other side. So we think of, you know, Dante Johnson, we think of Akella Witherspoon. Those are the players that are going to be playing on the other side. Do those cornerbacks fit the profile? And is there anything about the defense that's going to help them as they make the transition? Yeah, I mean, and this is one I think we've touched on a couple times before, but I, I think this really fits well with the cornerbacks that we have uh, left that are, that you would expect to play on the outside, right? Obviously, you mentioned uh, Robinson, um, Dante Johnson, uh, I, I think is somebody that we've really liked that is, I think, played well in a very limited sample. He just hasn't been able to get on the field a whole lot so far for whatever reason. Um, but, you know, I think you could see him perform really well. And, of course, uh, you know, Akella Witherspoon is my dude. I fucking love that guy. I think he's going to be great. And I think the question marks there um, really come down to do they develop like you would expect, right? Does Richard Robinson, you know, does he hold that weight? Can he be a little bit more physical, um, and, and really t- kind of take the next step there in his development. I think with Akella Witherspoon, it's a lot of similar things, right? You know, he's got to get a little bit stronger, got to add a little bit weight, um, to, to be able to compete against some of these receivers, these bigger, more physical guys on the outside that he's going to see. But, you know, I, I like the skill set for that role a lot. And, you know, again, we talked a lot about how this scheme helps your cornerbacks out, right? And how you have that kind of strong middle of the field, you have the deep safety that's going to help out on those routes. You have those interior, uh, you know, the underneath defenders that are going to be able to help on the, the kind of shorter in-breaking stuff. Um, and so it allows them to be able to kind of funnel things off to the, to the middle of the field a lot and then not have to worry about as many routes on the outside, right? There, there's only, uh, when, once you eliminate a lot of the in-breaking stuff, you know, there's only so many things that a, that a receiver can do on the outside without breaking cuts. So it really helps them out. They can kind of anticipate a little bit better and be in better position, I think. So, uh, yeah, we, we have a lot of turnover at that position in general. I mean, Robinson's really the only holdover that played significant time last year. But um, I, I think the guys that we have left on the outside fit this scheme really, really well. So one quick note about this, the size of the cornerbacks. If you look at Akella Witherspoon and you look at Rashad Robinson and you look at Dante Johnson, they are all... Uh, 6'2 or above. I think Rashad Robinson is the shortest at 6'1. Um, and at that height, they are in the 75th percentile of quarterback, of cornerbacks in the NFL. Uh, and they're all hovering around the, that necessary weight as well. 202 pounds puts them at the 75th percentile. So you're talking about cornerbacks. We've got three cornerbacks that on some level are going to be taller or bigger than, you know, almost eight out of 10 DBs in the NFL. I mean, these are big, long corners. And they can and, run. And, and yeah, and they're fast. I mean, Akella yeah. Witherspoon, we talked about his speed. Rashad Robinson is fast. Um, and even Dante Johnson is, is probably the slowest of the three, but he's not slow. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've seen, so like, you can maybe get away if you have really, really great technique, right? Somebody, if you think of somebody like Sherman, right? He doesn't have the fastest 40 time, you know, and doesn't have the greatest long speed, but he's very good at using that length and, um, you know, using his technique to kind of, prevent situations where he has to really get in that track meet. But anytime you're playing a lot of press coverage, you need to have corners that can run. You know, they, they need to be able to, if they get beat at the line of scrimmage, which is going to inevitably happen at times, you know, they got to be able to make up that ground and, and get back on that receiver. So, um, yeah, I think all of these guys, I mean, we talked about Witherspoon and the type of athlete that he was uh, coming out. You know, I think Robinson's an excellent athlete as well, and, and we've seen kind of that speed from him. So, yeah, they're big and physical and can run. You know, they're really exactly what you want, the, the the prototype that you want for this scheme. So one thing that we haven't talked about a little bit or that we really haven't talked about at all is going to be the the slot corner 
or that third DB that's going to come in. Of course, you've got a battle on the roster with you know, the Prince Charles Awards of the world, Will Redman, uh, and Kwan Williams, who actually is a lot better than I thought he was. Uh, and you know, what what role does that nickel cornerback have in this defense when it is that the team goes to nickel? So I think you're looking at, you know, one of two things. If they're playing man, right, he obviously is going to be locked up in man coverage on, on the slot corner. Um, when you looking at zone, it's going to be more of that curl flat role, right? So he's going to be one of the guys that's responsible for rerouting the guys up the seam and making sure that he can, uh, you know, those guys don't get a free release and, and kind of run clean into that area. Um, he's going to be sinking deep, you know, and is a lot of the same responsibilities as kind of the strong safety, you know, when you're in the more typical sky, which is going to be, I think, kind of the, if you think of one of them as like the default in this defense Sky cover three is going to be kind of the default where the safety is playing, you know, that that flat force role on the opposite side of, of your nickel corner, essentially. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be those type of things. So you want somebody that can be, you know, still physical enough. They got to be able to reroute. Um, but also, you know, just the kind of the typical um, slot corner man coverage abilities. Right. They need to be able to defend against that two way go. They need to have that, um, you know, kind of short area quickness to be able to, to stick with those uh, shifty guys underneath. So. Um, yeah, I think Quan Williams is somebody that's really intriguing to me. I think him and Will Redmond are probably, you know, seem to be the the most talented guys in that group that would be competing for that spot. But, you know, he's uh, he missed all of last season or most all of last season, I think, um, with with an injury, but was played really well on the slot, you know, during his first two years is uh, familiar with the DB coach. You know, he's played for him for a long time. So uh, I, I think he's kind of a guy to watch in, in that role. I think it could do well. Yeah, and you look at their size, and they're not nearly as tall, but they still uh, have a little bit of, a, of weight to them. They're, they're girthy. They're girthy on the inside. <laughs> yep, that's right. So sticking with then the, the defensive backs, and let's talk a little bit about Eric Reed and the underneath coverage, because if Sky is going to be the, the primary variant that will run, remember, that's where the safety is, the flat force defender. What that means is that Eric Reed is now going to basically become that full-time in-the-box safety. The, the visual or kind of mental representation of Eric Reed's role is going to be Cam Chancellor, where he's going to be patrolling around the middle. He's going to be responsible for that flat force area, and he's going to be primarily responsible for rerouting wide, wide receivers when they go up into that seam. Now, you had to do a film breakdown and a scouting report on Eric Reed for Scouting Academy. So what did you see in that scouting report, and do you think that he is going to be a fit for this new kind of in-the-box safety uh, in this defense. Absolutely. I think this, uh, you know, a lot like Jimmy Ward is a transition that's going to help him out a lot and, and really allow him to be kind of the best version of himself. Because, you know, when you looked at his tape from last year, and I think even in, in previous seasons, a lot of his best snaps were snaps where he was close to the line of scrimmage, you know, up in the box or um, maybe as a slot, you know, corner or something like that, but up near the line of scrimmage and kind of uh, it, it's when things, when he started to get, you know, deeper down the field and be playing in, in a little bit more space where things got a little bit dicey and you saw some mistakes from him. So, um, yeah, I think the ability to, you know, be an extra run defender, uh, up in the box to be able to, you know, play man coverage on tight ends and, and even some bigger slot cornerbacks, right. Or excuse me, slot receivers. Um, and, and, you know, we saw him like do a pretty, pretty damn good job against Jimmy Graham with the exception of, you know, going up and challenging the ball on a couple of passes. But, uh, you know, he got kind of out jumped essentially by Jimmy Graham on, on a couple of plays, but, uh, in man coverage, you know, from that standpoint, I think did a very good job against, you know, those type of players. So, 
Um, yeah, I think it's going to be a really good fit for him. Again, he was really strongest when he could be up in the box near the line of scrimmage, and that's going to be what he's doing, you know, probably 90 plus percent of the time this year. So fan favorite, uh, Jaquaski Tart. What, what do you think happens to him? Cause at, at one point people were thinking that he could replace, uh, and you know, us included when we were thinking about the kind of dollar linebacker and, and what, when we were playing a defense where that was kind of a big deal, does he just kind of neatly slot into Reed's backup uh, and that's that? Or do you think that there's something else in store for, for our friend Jaquaski? Um, I think you could still see him used in kind of a similar capacity to what we've really expected a lot, right? Which is where you could have maybe some three safety packages. So say you're playing a team, um, you know, where their slot receiver is a little bit of a bigger guy and, you know, not, not as shifty, you know, think of like, you know, Marcus Colston type uh, player in that role. And maybe that's somebody that you would rather have Eric Reed match up with as opposed to, um, you know, somebody like Quan Williams or Will Redmond or whoever wins that role. You know, I think you could see Eric Reed effectively kick out and play that, uh, you know, more of the slot corner role and then have Tart come in and play the strong safety role. Um, and so I th- and I think maybe on occasion, you know, I think it's less likely now that you see somebody like Ruben Foster added to the equation. But, you know, I, I wouldn't put it past it, him getting some snaps, you know, at linebacker and certain sub packages. But. Yeah, I think he's primarily going to be kind of a reserve player that, you know, sees some time maybe in some special packages. But um, right now, I I don't see how you can really make a case that he's a better fit, that he's a more talented player than Eric Reed for that role to to get a starting job. Um, You know, obviously with Eric Reed, he's only under contract for this season. And, um, you know, what happens after that is, is kind of another conversation. But at least for this year, um, Eric Reed's, you know, he's a better athlete. I think he's a better player at this point, um, and, and is a really a you know a better fit for that role based on what they have. So, any other final thoughts that you've got about the transition specifically for the 49ers? Because by and large, it sounds like what we're saying is that the transition actually, whether it be serendipity or some other thing is better and puts these players in a better position than they would be otherwise from a schematic perspective. They are more better suited for some of these positions when we're talking about Jimmy Ward and Eric Reed. And the corners that we've been amassing over the last couple of years happen to fit the physical kind of profile that you would need for this type of a defense. So is there anything else when it comes to the transition that you think, oh, you know, watch out for this or is there anything else that uh, or, or or there's something else that's interesting? Um, I would say just to that you need to have some patience, right? So I, I think while uh, the the transition should be very positive from a long term standpoint for the secondary, especially like I think um, you know all, like we've talked about, all the pieces kind of fit a, a lot better to me um, with this secondary in this particular scheme. But it's not going to happen overnight, you know. Again, these corners are still unproven. You know, as much as we like Rashard Robinson, I think everybody likes Rashard Robinson, and you're talking. You know, there's a lot of talk this offseason now of how he's going to be a number one lockdown corner. Like, we don't know any of that yet. You know, we've talked about this a lot the last couple of years with these unknowns, right? And everybody wants to assume the, the, the best case scenario for development for these players. Aaron Lynch, double and, digit sacks. And it doesn't happen, right? It doesn't always Ahmad happen. Ahmad Brooks, going to get cut. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's another story. Um, but but I think yeah, as as much as um, those things very well could happen, and you could even argue in some cases, you know, in the cases of like uh, DeForest Buckner, are probably the most likely outcome. But it doesn't all happen at once, and it's not. You know, it, I think it's unreasonable to expect 
every single one of these players on defense to kind of all develop um, perfectly and, and kind of reach their potential all at the same time. Um, it just doesn't typically work like that. So even though, again, long-term, I think when you, you talk about a pair of corners and Robinson and Akella Witherspoon on the outside that are, that are really good fits, you, you know, you talk about Jimmy Ward, um, you know, his contract status is, is, you know, to be determined as well. But, um, you know, I, I think these over the next couple of years could really develop into something that is very, very good from a secondary standpoint. But I would say when, you know, things come out, and in the first month of the season, it's not going so well, like not to panic because that's not really that unexpected. They're going to have some bumps still. Um, you know, guys like Robinson and Witherspoon are going to have some bad games where they get beat. Uh, and that's just part of it. So I, I think, yeah, long term is going to be very, very good, but there's going to be some short term bumps for sure. I think for me, it'll be it'll be, well, the importance of the safety, but more specifically, I, I think I already know my my Twitter response when people are complaining in weeks like, I don't know, one through 16 uh, it's going to be ha- hashtag six year deal. Like it's a, it's a six year deal, dude. Like yep. we've, we've got a little bit, we've got a little bit of time. It, it doesn't need to be your, doesn't need to be your one hashtag six year deal. Um, I think my takeaway goes back to something we mentioned earlier. And that is that it is indeed the free safety that this defense, this, the secondary specifically is all keyed off of from the defensive backs alignment to what the free safety is asked to do to what they need to do in order to be successful. Jimmy Ward is going to be the key to this defense. And I think for, for a long time in the NFL, the, the cornerback reigned supreme. I mean, you know, Revis Island was a thing. And, you know, even when Sherman became, uh, you know, the, the elite cornerback that he eventually grew into, it was still a world in which the cornerback dominated. And it was about finding an elite corner and finding an elite corner. And, and now, while I do think we have, you know, potentially some promising corners with, with very good potential, it's still all going to be on how well Jimmy Ward is able to execute at the free safety position. Because if you look at what happened to Seattle when Earl Thomas went down, that defense fell apart. That defense absolutely fell apart. Even with Richard Sherman, who is arguably, you know, I think it's, it's an easy case to put him in the top five uh, cornerbacks, arguably maybe the best. And, and I mean, their defense, it has all pro super bowl winning players and Earl Thomas goes down, and they all look like they were playing Pop Warner at some, at, like at times. It was ridiculous the change that happened simply because of the safety. So I'm really going to have a, a, a super laser focus on Jimmy Ward because I think how he goes, the rest of the defense is going to go. I, and I'm really excited to see him in that role. Like I, I think you know uh, we've probably been leading the Jimmy Ward bandwagon for the last couple of years. You know, I think especially early on, people are ready to, to call him a bust and whatnot. But I think he's overall been a very solid player, and, I, and I'm looking forward to seeing what he does in, in this role because I think it fits in the best. Absolutely agree. Uh, so thanks again for tuning in to episode two of Scheme Month. We will be back next week, and we're going to talk about the offense. We wanted to give the defense a little bit of love for a change. Uh, but we are going to come at you with some offensive-minded scheme month. Uh, re- uh, bleh, word vomit. <laughs> next week is going to be offense. That's really what you need to know. <laughs> there you go. Next that's, two that's weeks, imp- probably. Yeah, so. yeah that's going to be the important part. Uh, I will be helping put together uh, a ranking of the entire roster for Niners Nation. So keep your eyes peeled for that. I think Fuji is going to put together a couple of posts uh, in a couple weeks where the, the site writers are going to get together and rank who we think uh, are going to, the best people on the roster and we'll rank it top to bottom and uh, and other than that just stay tuned for next week it is indeed the off season so this is what we've got to look forward to uh, and hopefully you do too 
If you're tuning in on Google Play or iTunes, definitely leave a review. If you don't mind, helps people find the show, helps us out tremendously uh, because we want to take over the world and basically turn everyone into 49ers fans. We want them to feel our pain too. Yep. That's it. Life call to action. Call to action is uh, what? That booty? That booty or what was the other one? Like all up in your butt or I don't know. <laughs> Something about there was another butt. I don't remember. Uh, I don't. I don't think that it that was one. Wasn't that? It was. It was similar <laughs> to that. Ish. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. You uh, <laughs> go ahead and, and hit us. Hit us with your fave of the different call to actions. But I'm gonna go ahead and say hashtag it wasn't something a, about butts. That's uh, yes. That's hashtag really something about butts. That sounds about right. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, This has been fun, and we'll see you in a week. And as always, go Niners. Hey everybody, it's Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge. I host a podcast every week called The Verge Cast with my friends Paul Miller and Dieter Bone. We've got a rotating cast of characters from our entire site, which is about technology, how it impacts culture, and how that is all a big cycle that causes us to have a wide variety of feelings that you can listen to every Friday. We've done over 300 episodes in the six years since The Verge has been around, but you only need to listen to one, the latest one, to get caught up on everything in tech news. Vergecast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else. Also, you listen to podcasts, check it out.